Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. I'm delighted today to again be joined by Helen Branswell. She is senior writer at STAT on infectious disease and global health. She is widely recognized as a leading expert in those areas since for two decades now, she began reporting on SARS in 2003, extensive coverage of bird flu, H1N1, Ebola, Zika, polio, measles, and in the period of the coronavirus pandemic, we came to rely exceedingly upon her expertise and many, many insights and really prodigious output. So Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really honored to have you with us. Oh, thank you for having me back. So I wanted to talk a bit with you about some of the recent work that you've done that's quite interesting on issues that we haven't talked about much lately. Let's start with RSV, which is Respiratory Syncytial Virus, RSV. You published back on June 21st, last week on Wednesday. We'll get into the decisions that were taken by the advisory group to the CDC, but let's start first. What's RSV? Why do we care about it? What are the specific threats that it poses to whom? So RSV is a virus, obviously, that infects a respiratory tract. It's um, one of the myriad viruses that cause what we think of as cold and flu-like symptoms or illnesses. It's quite a serious one for really little children, like infants in particular, and older adults. For the rest of us, it can cause a very nasty cold, but for very little kids who have very small airways, it's really a horrible illness. They have trouble breathing, you know, during RSV season. Emergency rooms in uh, children's hospitals and other hospitals are just swamped with, you know, desperate parents and babies who are breathing very shallowly and rapidly. And so, you know, that's a real concern. On the other end of the age spectrum, with, you know, older adults, particularly people sort of in their eight, 70, 75 and older, for, for instance, and uh, people with immunocompromised status, and especially people living in long-term care facilities, it can be also quite a dangerous virus. The CDC estimates that it, and it, kills between six and 10,000 older adults in the United States every year and hospitalizes between 60,000 and 160,000 older adults every year. What are the numbers on infants that flood to emergency rooms and require hospitalization? About 2.1 million outpatient visits for little kids under five, uh, somewhere between 58,000 and 80,000 hospitalizations. And they estimate that about one to 300 deaths in little kids occur in this country every year. It is the, the number one 
reason why little children are hospitalized in the United States. And globally, it's the number two cause of death amongst children under the age of one. In the U.S., kids mostly don't die, but globally, it, it is quite a big killer of little children. So why are we now talking about the arrival of a new monoclonal antibody that can be used with young children that FDA has reviewed, and you can talk a bit about that. And why are we now talking about vaccines that have been developed and put forward for older adults above 60 that we'll talk about the process of of reviewing that for CDC? But just stepping back for a moment, not much was done on this disease in terms of countermeasures for several decades. Why, why, Why that gap? Well, back in the 60s, there was work done on a vaccine. There was a vaccine that was being tested in a clinical trial. And they found that actually children who got the vaccine and the children in the vaccine arm, some of them had enhanced disease rather than protection against RSV. And I think there were a small number of deaths, maybe four. But that really put the kibosh on that field of research for quite a long time. Obviously, whenever there's a signal of enhanced disease from a vaccine, people get very worried about it. And for a long time, there was work done trying to figure out why that vaccine had acted in the way it did. Um, more recently with developments in, you know, the ability to to look at the crystal structure, for instance, of the virus. Vaccinologists, whose names some of your listeners might know because of the work on COVID vaccines, Jason McClellan in Texas and Barney Graham, who used to be at the NIH's Vaccine Research Center. Right, very legendary figures. Exactly. They figured out what was going on there and that you needed to target a different formulation of the F protein, which is on the surface of the RSV virus. And with that, they they were able to develop vaccines that appear to be safe to, you know, they've been now tested in quite a, a number of people and in the main, they appear to be safe. They certainly haven't seen anything that would signal like enhanced disease. So that's why you're all of a sudden seeing just this sort of plethora of products that are nearing the end of the production pipeline. You mentioned monoclonal antibodies. The situation with little kids is complicated because you can't start to vaccinate kids really early in life. You know, they may not get a good take from vaccine, but that's when they are at highest risk. So Pfizer has taken the approach of developing a vaccine that would be given to pregnant people because uh, if you give it late in pregnancy, the pregnant person will develop antibodies that will be passed through the placenta to the infant and the infant will have some protection on board for the early months of life, which should mitigate severe disease at that age. AstraZeneca and Sanofi have gone a different route. They've developed the monoclonal antibody, which they would like to see given to all children at birth. And it looks like it would be very effective in protecting in the first year of life. The issue with that one is that it's pretty costly. But um, what's the likely price of that? Well, when the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the, the expert group that when they when they study things, they have to look at cost effectiveness. And so they ask companies to submit cost analyses and the figure the companies have used in their cost analysis that they supplied to the CDC was $500 a dose. Okay. So for little kids, we've got in development a vaccine that might be used with pregnant women. We've got the development right. of monoclonal for use with young with the youngest, one-year-olds, perhaps two that are high risk. That's been approved by FDA, awaits action by CDC. 
Uh, no, uh, both of those products are still before the FDA, okay. but the Verpac meeting, the ADCOM meeting for the maternal vaccine was, was relatively recently. The expectation is that both of those products will be approved and probably approved over the summer. Certainly, you know, within this calendar year, but probably before the fall. Okay. All right. Let's turn to what happened recently at the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, the group that advises CDC. They met on the 21st last week regarding vaccines for older adults, and the recommendation was positive but rather lukewarm, fell far short of a full-throated endorsement of this. Can you explain what happened? First of all, the FDA approved both these vaccines, one is made by Pfizer, one is made by GSK, for adults 60 and older. And clearly that's what the companies hoped that there would be a recommendation for. Just in case, you know, your listeners don't understand this, FDA approves based on whether or not it's safe for an individual, safe and effective for an individual to get. But then, you know, the issue about who should get a vaccine goes to the ACIP, the committee that you mentioned. And they have to take, as I said earlier, they have to take into consideration things like cost effectiveness, because they're making recommendations that are population based, not, you know, about the individual. So they have to do cost, you know, cost benefit analyses and, and, you know, kick the tires of the data and see what's going on. They have been indicating for some time that the work group, which is that on RSV vaccines for older adults, a subcommittee of the full committee, those folks have been clear that they really didn't see that there was a cost benefit to giving it to everybody 60 to 64, that in that age group, some people... They voted against that. They voted... Well, Right? Yeah. Yes, in fact. But they've been signaling, signaling that for some time. But they had seemingly been behind the notion of approving it for everybody 65 and older, saying that adults 65 and older should get this vaccine. However, over the course of the day last week, they, as you mentioned, their support for it seemed kind of lukewarm. They had lots of questions, questions about how well it works and the people who really need it. And let me be clear, they weren't suggesting it doesn't work, but what they were saying was the companies had tested it mainly in younger, older adults, if that makes any sense, people in their 60s rather than a lot of people 75 and older. There there really weren't enough people 75 and older to, to tell if it was effective in that age group. There were no people in congregate living settings involved in the clinical trials. And if people were immunocompromised, they were excluded from the trials. So the committee was effectively being asked to assume that data that was collected in younger, older adult and healthier older adult would tell them how well the vaccine worked in, you know, frail older adults. And they really didn't feel like they had, you know, the capacity to do that. The other thing is these vaccines are going to be pretty expensive. I mean, you know, this is RSV is sort of in terms of the disease burden. It's a, somewhere like flu. The burden of disease is not quite as severe as flu, but it's in that ballpark. But these vaccines are going to cost multiples. Uh, as I of, understand it, as I understand it, Helen, the committee pushed the two uh, GSK and Pfizer to come up with more firm numbers. They came up with ranges, which was roughly 200 to 270, 200 to 295 for a two-year dose. It's proven to be effective for two years. Right. 
And so they up their price by that. Is this something that individuals are likely to be paying out of pocket, or is this something that will be covered with the endorsement CDC? It will come. It will be covered under insurance. How how will that work? Yeah, I, it will be covered under insurance. In the end, what they decided was that for adults 60 to 64 and adults 65 and older, that people who want this vaccine should talk to their healthcare provider about it and, and make a decision with the assistance of their healthcare provider. And so, yes, they will be covered. Uh, one of the complications with this vaccine, though, is it's going to be covered under Medicare Part D, which is the part of Medicare that covers pharmacy delivery services. So even if you and your doctor decide you want to get it, you're probably going to have to get it at a pharmacy because doctors can't easily bill for products that are covered by Medicare Part D. So this is likely going to be something that's going to be delivered in a pharmacy. I see. So there were a couple of other concerns about Guillain-Barre syndrome. There was a concern about whether this, how would this vaccine operate when it's being given concomitantly with other vaccines? Can you say a bit about those two issues? Those seem to be ones that surfaced as well, that gave pause to the committee. Right. Yeah, there were there was certainly a, quite a bit of concern on the the work group that subcommittee that I mentioned earlier about Guillain-Barré syndrome. Three people in the trials for the two vaccines developed GBS as it's known. That's a rate that would be higher than you would expect. I mean, it could still be be, be flu, but it is something that definitely gives people pause. There have certain been vaccines in the past that have been associated with an elevated risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome, the shingles vaccine, Shingrix, that is very popular. You know, there is a slightly elevated risk of getting GBS from that vaccine, but you know, people are very motivated not to contract shingles or develop shingles. So I think most people are willing to take that risk. With this vaccine, you know, it, the the jury is out whether or not there is an as, uh, association between higher risk of GBS and getting this vaccine. And we won't know, frankly, until more people take it. So that's kind of an un- unanswerable question at this point, but it gives people pause for sure. And in terms of the other question that you asked was related to... The concomitant use. Oh, yeah, yeah. The number of vaccines that older adults are getting and supposed to get on a regular basis have been increasing in recent years. You know, it used to be just a flu shot and now it's a flu and a COVID shot. And conceivably, you know, now they might be urged to get RSV shot every couple of years. And the seasons for those diseases are all relatively similar. And so the window in which you would vaccinate people, it's all around the same time, early fall, probably. And it's known that with vaccines, if you give them at the same time, sometimes you get a worse take that, you know, one will impede the immune response to another. It's known, for instance, that RSV is what is sometimes called a dominant antigen, that if you get something to protect against RSV at the same time as you get something to protect against flu, that your reaction to the flu shot will be weakened by the concomitant administration of the RSV vaccine. And that really concerned the the members of the committee as well, because clearly flu is a big risk. And, you know, you don't want to protect people against one thing and weaken their, their protection against something else. Thank you. Thank you. This is a complicated topic. Thanks for walking really us through complicated. all of these different complexities. The big picture is this is a very positive moment, right? A very positive moment in getting uh, new tools of protection for both the, the youngest children, infants, newborns, 
And for the most frail and elderly and immune compromised or people who are in greatest need at that end of this of the of the life course. Yeah, it, you're right. It it is a very positive moment. At the same time, getting the maximum benefit from these new tools is going to be challenging. I mean, people will definitely work it out over the next few years, but it's going to be a challenging time to sort of try to figure out how to make these work to the maximum benefit. Yes, that's a great point. Let's move to a second topic that you've been writing on recently, which is Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, um, indicated, I think it's meeting this week, to make a decision on uh, something that it's signaled it's inclined to move ahead with a hexavalent vaccine. That is a vaccine that's six in one. Normally, it'd be five in one, like hepatitis B, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis. It's going to add in vaccines against polio, against the three variants of polio, so that the polio gets built into this, what becomes a hexavalent vaccine, into the future. This is a big step. It's a very important step. And I wanted you to explain to us, what is it about this step that has you you know, dedicating a lot of time and ink to try to bring across to people what this may mean. I think it would be important to give people a little bit of background about polio vaccines because this is a very complicated topic and people don't really remember it because for us, polio has is long gone, really. In the United States, we use inactivated polio vaccine, which is called IPV. It's an inject- injectable vaccine, protects against all three uh, types of polio viruses, and it works well, but it does not do some things that the alternative does. The alternative is oral polio vaccine. It was developed by Albert Sabin, the giant who really helped save the world from polio. The vaccine that he created can be given very easily, given by anybody. You don't have to be a healthcare worker. It's delivered in drops, an eyedropper dropped into the mouths of kids. And it has been the workhorse of the international campaign to you know, rid the world of polio. Two things about that vaccine. When kids get it, they shed live vaccine viruses in their stools. And if you're living in an environment where hand hygiene and water sanitation is poor, those viruses can spread in communities. So you don't have to vaccinate 100% of the kids in a community to vaccinate 100% of the kids in the community. Those vaccine viruses will spread. That has been a big benefit, was a big benefit when there was a lot of polio around. But what can also happen is those viruses, which had been weakened when they were made into vaccine, can regain the power to paralyze if they spread for too long. And, you you know, currently what we see in the world is very few wild polio cases, you know, six so far this year, but several hundred vaccine-derived cases. And so it's clear that in order to get across the finish line with polio, at some point in time, oral vaccine has to stop. The use of an oral polio vaccine has to stop. And so this proposal from Gavi to include IPV in this hexavalent vaccine could increase the amount of immunity there is to polio around the world. I mean, you know, in our part of the world, unless parents are completely vaccine resistant, kids get polio vaccine, but there are lots of parts in the world of the world now where that does happen. And so, you know, it's known that the uptake for some of the other vaccines in the hexavalent is higher. So the thinking is this would get polio protection into more children, but it would also build polio protection 
into vaccine programs over the long term, which is effectively insurance against countries stopping to vaccinate too soon. So, Helen, the oral vaccine is one which contains live virus. And that's, of course, a source of the problem ultimately in terms of it that that contains the potential for becoming stronger and for generating vaccine-derived virus. So getting out of the oral virus is a way of ending that vaccine-derived virus phenomenon. Is that correct? That's correct. It is, and it's not, you know, it won't be cheap, but the thinking is that this is this would be important to help get the job done. I mean, as you would know, polio eradication was supposed to have been completed by the year 2000, and here we are in 23, and the program had given itself another deadline, the end of 2023, to have stopped wild polio and the vaccine-derived chains of transmission. Doesn't look like, at least in terms of the latter, that that goal will be be met, but this could help next with next year, maybe. I mean, if this is approved, it would probably start to be available to countries in 2024. So, you know, we'll see. There's one, there's one point I wanted to make, Helen, in this, which is my memory on the Global Polio Eradication Initiative, which got started back, I think, in 1988. And it's gone through various, you know, evolving strategies and the like, but that the hope was that, okay, it's going to be a billion dollars a year in order to eradicate. And we're down to just a few cases in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Africa looks like is holding on wild virus. There's some introduction. We've got the vaccine derived, but the hope was once you get to eradication, you're going to be able to be free of spending that much money and be able to turn your attention and resources and army of vaccinators and towards broader purposes. This is this shift is implying that we're going to have to scale this approach of a hexavalent vaccine over several years and do it in perpetuity. Correct? I mean, it it's not it's there's not going to be that much of a savings, perhaps. Over time, the per cost savings may come down because you're you're giving six vaccines in one package. And there's some economies of scale and savings in administration of this that make it much more economically sound and efficient than than giving just vaccines for polio. Yeah, you're right. That was definitely, you know, the rationale for, uh, in addition to the fact that children wouldn't be paralyzed, the thinking was, if we spend the money to do this, then we can stop vaccinating against polio in the way the world has stopped vaccinating against smallpox, the only human pathogen that's ever been eradicated. This policy that Gavi is trying to push through does suggest that that goal of phasing out vaccination against polio is not going to happen anytime soon, and this is not going to be as cost-saving as people had hoped. And certainly our part of the world, affluent countries, there was never going to be a quick cessation of vaccination against polio after eradication. You know, maybe at some point in time, if people felt it was safe and polio was really truly gone. But in this day and age, especially with synthetic biology, I think it's not likely that it would be phased out soon. And in terms of low and middle income countries that might want to stop vaccinating against 
polio at a point. This plan to make the hexavalent does not eliminate the existence of the pentavalent. The pentavalent will still be available and some countries will opt to use it and will continue to opt to use it. And I guess presumably, you know, at a point countries could say, all right, we're ready to move back to the pentavalent. But but I think the thinking is you want to build in some insurance to make sure the thing is really gone. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Let's move to uh, a topic of uh, U.S. leadership. And by U.S. leadership, I mean leadership in science, biomedicine, public health. We've seen a deflation of that leadership recently with a couple of things that have happened. There's been the retirement of iconic personalities, Francis Collins, Anthony Fauci. So there's a generational shift that's happened. We've hit the midterm of this administration. That's a normal turnover point. We had Ron Klain step down, replaced by Jeff Seintz. It's the end of the public health emergency that is also leading to the departure of folks. So we see Ron Klain depart. We see Rochelle Walensky finishing her job at CDC as the director this week. Ashish Jha returning to Brown University. Raj Punjabi departing his position as senior director. You've written about Mandy Cohen's appointment to be the next CDC director. And I really liked that piece. It was terrifically nuanced and detailed. You were able to talk to people who really understood her the different points in her career when she was working with Andy Slavitt in the rescue of healthcare.gov a decade ago, when she served at as this chief of staff and chief operating officer at CMS when 15 to 17, when Andy Slavitt was the acting director there, five years in North Carolina as the health secretary. As the Biden administration is rebuilding its leadership ranks, it's it seems to have changed some of it, the paradigm of, of selection. And you use that case of Manny Cohen in terms of what she brings to the table in a non-traditional way for a job of director of CDC. Tell us a bit about that. And also, can you remark on whether this is a broader change that's happening? Is this in what we expect in the post-COVID phase, given what we've learned in, during the acute phase of COVID, that we're looking for a different kind of profile of leadership? Is that happening? But first about uh, what Mandy Cohen's appointment signaled in your interpretation. Well, your listeners will have heard you discussing that a little bit with Dan Diamond last week, and and you know the point he I I will reiterate a point that he made that typically CDC directors have been infectious disease docs. They've often been people who have either previously worked at the CDC or longtime CDC staffers. Sometimes they've been people who've been through the CDC's emergency epidemic intelligence service that their uh, disease detective training school. But, you know, the days when CDC was only about infectious diseases are long gone. CDC does lots of work on chronic diseases now and other health threats. And it's just a much bigger agency. And, you know, some of the people I spoke to suggested CDC hasn't necessarily been well served by the fact that in the past, a number of its people didn't have sort of political connections. They were appointed because of their expertise in the field of infectious diseases, but they weren't people who were well known in Washington, who had lots of connections in Washington, who who knew how to appear before committees, who knew how to who who could run the gamut of the interagency right, and 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 secure meetings that would help in advance that would help them get through committee hearings. Mandy Cohen is somebody who has those skills. And the people I spoke to for the piece that you referenced suggested that, you know, it's really time for the CDC to be run by somebody who knows how to 
how Washington works and how to get things done with Washington because it's imperative. I think may be a bit of a challenge for the staff of the CDC. They like it or they expect a CDC director to be based in Atlanta. And by based, I mean living there with their family. And Dr. Walensky did not move her family there. Of course, it was in the middle of the pandemic when she took over the job and nobody was working on the CDC campus anyway. So I'm not really sure that that would have made a difference other than, you know, sort of spiritually for the, the staff. I think I'm not 100% certain, but I think Dr. Cohen is not also planning to move her family there. She has middle school-aged children. But, you know, the reality is the person who runs CDC now spends time in, in Atlanta and spends a lot of time in Washington, and that is the way of the world. As to whether or not you asked about whether this is going to be, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like every position is its own thing. You know, some of the, one of the things I find interesting is the number of jobs that are open. You know, it is I think kind of surprising that they haven't found a replacement for Tony Fauci yet. You you would think, well, they will definitely want to fill that before 2024, But and that is not a Senate-confirmed position, so it, they don't have to worry about that, but, but you would definitely want to fill it before 2024. Absolutely. Helen, let's close with a question around what it means to be a reporter, a health reporter like yourself in the post-COVID phase. How has the the reporting practice itself changed in this era? Does it mean we're turning away from important topics that people are suddenly less interested in? Does it mean that it's a very refreshing change because it opens the door for looking at things that you've wanted to look at but couldn't afford to because of the the acute pressures of the pandemic? Or some mix of all of that. What has been? What is your experience right now in this? And what are your reflections on being a reporter in this post-COVID phase? So, you know, during the first couple of years of the pandemic, I really couldn't write about anything other than COVID. It was the only thing, the only thing that mattered effectively on my beat at that time. Certainly my editors weren't eager for me to write about other things. And I found myself really hankering for a chance to write about other things. And then last year, all sorts of other things happened, you know, all at once. COVID wasn't gone, but the United States had a polio case, a vaccine-derived polio case, and its first ever case of H5N1 bird flu. And there was that strange story about little children developing hepatitis of unknown origin and MPOX, the big MPOX outbreak that was completely unforeseen. And, uh, you know, in the spring of last year, I thought my head was going to explode. <laughs> it was so busy and so many other things. It has calmed down some, but I'm still still trying to get the muscles that you need to be able to cover polio one day and an ACIP meeting the next day and write about RSV and write about flu and all of the various things that my beat entails and sort of juggle lots of things coming at me and make decisions about what is important and what I, you know, have to let go. I'm still, I have lost the muscle memory for how to do that and I'm still trying to get that back. And so I actually paradoxically find myself missing the time when I could just focus on one thing, you know that it was 
way too busy, but there was a luxury of only being, you know, of knowing that I only had to focus on COVID. You know, COVID really elevated health reporters into much higher visibility, much greater influence. You and several of your counterparts became household names. Your Twitter following, your following on other social media expanded dramatically. You know, you were being cited you and your and other sterling reporters were being cited in all sorts of discussions around the national interest and policy and what should be done and what can't be done. And you were among the most trusted and respected in that group. Is this going to continue or are you feeling like the, 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 the level of elevation, influence and attention is, is, is dropping now in this post-COVID phase? That's very kind. I was never a household name and I'm not a household name now. Yes, of course. I mean, people are focusing on other things as they should. You can only pay attention to things for so long. And it is good to see other issues, climate change, for instance, getting more attention. My Twitter following is declining. It's not rapid, but it, it I, I'm losing people. And some of that is people no longer interested in my topics, I'm sure. Some of this is that people are leaving Twitter, you know, (laughs) and nowhere else. Elon Musk isn't helping you with his behavior. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so um, it does feel very much like um, things have returned to where they were prior to the pandemic. I see. Uh, Helen, this has been a terrific conversation. Very grateful that you found the time. We ask all of our guests to close by just telling us what gives you hope and optimism right now. You know, it's nice to see the world returning to normalcy. I mean, in many places, I think that's already taken place. But, you know, seeing people out and about and eating in restaurants and, and just not having to worry about COVID in the way that they did for a long time. I don't know about you, but I keep an eye on the, the death, the death curve. The the CDC has a, has a, you know, shows deaths by week throughout the pandemic and it's really low now. I mean, yes, it's still high, but you know, under 500 people a week at this point are dying from COVID, which astonishing. And, you know, the notion that as a species, we have acquired enough immunity through vaccination, through infections, through the combination, where this thing isn't doing to us what it was doing to us for those terrible years is, yeah, that's a nice feeling. That's a terrific way of closing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. You've been really generous with us today. Well, it's been fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.